They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Christ the King Anglican Church here at Crimson Tees on this Pentecost Sunday. I decided to wear my red uh, deacon stole today in honor of uh, Pentecost. Today is the second part of a two-part series in the book of the prophet Isaiah for Ascension and Pentecost. Our text this morning from God's Word is uh, in Isaiah 11. However, we are going to start with Psalm 72. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 72. I believe it's on page uh, 450, yeah, 454 in the Black Black Bibles. Psalm 72 is one of the royal psalms, and based on the uh, ascription at the start that reads of Solomon, or it could also say for Solomon, and the final verse, verse 20, that says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Based on these two things, it's believed that this psalm was a prayer by David for his son and successor, Solomon. In light of the um, amazing promises God made to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this psalm is full of hope for the reign of Solomon and the line of kings to descend from David. The psalm expresses that the king is to be righteous and just, especially on behalf of the poor and the needy, giving deliverance and crushing oppression. His land is to be fruitful and his people are to flourish in peace. Other nations are to revere and honor him. He is to live long and his people are to continually pray for him because it is really the Lord who does wonderful things through the king who reigns under him. And the blessings of the king's reign are to extend to the whole earth, bringing glory to God. Listen to the words of this psalm. Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. 
May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever, May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This psalm expresses the ideal of what David's dynasty was supposed to be. But as we talked about last week, David's dynasty fell a very long way short of this ideal. By the third generation, David's kingdom was divided, with David's line reigning only uh, in the south over the tribe of Judah. The kings from David's line proved unable to reign under God in the way David prayed they would in this song. Many did not even try. But those who did try still exhibited the flaws of fallen human nature. Yet God's promises to David remained. And as things declined in Israel more and more, God called prophets to speak to his people. The prophets pronounced dire warnings of judgment, but they also proclaimed that God's promises would yet be fulfilled. Isaiah was one of these prophets. When I read Psalm 72 this week, I was struck um, by how much the themes and language of our passage today in Isaiah 11 resonate with this psalm. God spoke to his people through Isaiah to tell them that despite the failure of David's dynasty, God himself would yet raise up a descendant of David whose reign would be all that God promised 
and that Psalm 72 imagined. Let's turn now to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Um, you just remind me of the page number there? 539. 539. 539, the Black Bibles. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> right off the top, verse 1 gives us the picture of David's disappointing dynasty being like a tree cut off, leaving only a stump. The picture of nothing left but a stump picks up on two prior images in Isaiah. The first is back in Isaiah chapter 6. In, uh, in this chapter of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah has, the, has a glorious vision of the three times holy God seated on the throne, surrounded by a host of angels. Isaiah despairs of his filthy sinfulness before God, but when an angel touches his lips with a burning coal, he is declared to be right with God. The Lord then sends him to prophesy to the people of Israel, who won't listen or understand, and keep on prophesying until their cities lie waste, the land is desolate, and the people are taken far away into exile. Then Isaiah 6 concludes with an image of devastation involving tree stumps. Yet, there is a hint of hope. The last uh, verse in that chapter um, says this of the devastated land and, um, and people. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This, uh, this picture of just the stumps remaining depicts what was to happen to God's rebellious people Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. We talked about that last week. The second image of stumps in Isaiah comes in chapter 10, and it depicts Assyria in turn being cut down and left as stumps by the Babylonians. But whereas nothing will ever come forth from the stumps of Assyria, something very significant is going to happen with one of the stumps of Israel. Take a look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember that David was the son of Jesse. This shoot from the stump of Jesse is pictured as both a descendant of David, a, a continuation of his dynasty, and a new David. In the second part of this verse, uh, the descend this descendant is pictured as a branch uh, from the roots that bears fruit. And if you skip ahead to verse 10, this person who is likened to a shoot 
from the stump of Jesse is also identified as the root of Jesse. Take a look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. How can one individual be both a shoot and the root? Well, the incarnation of Jesus Christ explains how it is possible. As we uh, say each week in the Nicene Creed, we just said it a moment ago, the eternally begotten Son of God, through whom all things were made, for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man and in particular was made a descendant of David. Indeed, uh, Jesus identified himself as the shoot and the root. At the very end of the Bible, in uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says this, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So here in Isaiah 11, the prophet declares that from the chopped down dynasty of David will come a new David. And verse 2 says, there will be a return to spiritual anointing as the mandate for kingship, rather than just being born to the previous king in the dynasty. Remember back in uh, 1 Samuel when Nathan anointed Saul king? The Bible said the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Then when Saul proved unfit uh, to be God's king, God sent Nathan to anoint David. And the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and departed from Saul. We never read again of the Spirit of the Lord coming for kingship upon anyone else. Um, many times the Spirit of the Lord came upon people for prophecy, yes, but not for kingship. Until the prophets, like Isaiah, began to speak of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon the one who becomes known as Messiah. Incidentally, at this uh, same time, the prophets also begin to speak of the Spirit being poured out on God's people for the changing of their hearts, uh, which of course points to Pentecost. Anyways, verse 2 is big news. The Spirit of the Lord will again anoint a new David and endow him with noble gifts and qualities in order that he might reign with justice and righteousness. Look at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord 
these, uh, the final qualities mentioned here, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, are essential to the right usage of the other gifts. Um, in our second Samuel study recently, we've met people um, that were endowed with wisdom, remember Jonadab, or understanding, remember Joab, or counsel, remember Ahithophel, or might, remember Absalom. But these folks used their gifts for unrighteous or even diabolical purposes. But this will not be so with the new David, because by the Spirit of the Lord, he knows and reveres the Lord. In fact, verse 3 says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And this makes him a king whose judgment is not biased or misguided, but it is grounded in the righteousness and faithfulness that God alone has in full measure, especially for the benefit of those um, who are often denied justice and fairness. The rich can afford skilled lawyers or offer bribes to bring about a decision in their favor. The poor cannot. The strong or the smart or the articulate can throw their weight around or finesse or talk their way out of trouble. The meek do not. So verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4 go on to say, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In addition, his words carry authority and his judgments carry weight. The rest of verse 4 says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Then we come to a, um, a classic and memorable sequence of images in verses 6 through 8. These verses speak figuratively about the ultimate result of the reign of this anointed king. There is peace, safety, and security. It's like a return to the Garden of Eden where all God's creatures and children live in harmony and innocence. Verses 6 to 8. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Now, granted, these verses are written in metaphorical language, but what is behind this kind of idyllic scene? 
in the scene, why do predators no longer devour their prey? Or in our world, we could ask, what would end exploitation, dehumanization, and violence? In the scene, why do wild beasts no longer eat meat? Or in our world, we could ask, what would end greed and lust? And in the scene, why do snakes no longer harm children? Or in our world, we could ask, what would end injury or disease of body, corruption or brokenness of mind, and poisoning or pollution of spirit? Verse 9 gives the answer in all cases. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The result of the reign of the king on whom the spirit of the Lord rests is that the Spirit of the Lord is poured out on all in his kingdom also. The result of the king being filled with the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is that every creature in his realm will become saturated by that same spirit. They will know and revere and worship the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord, also called the Holy Spirit, changes everything. Now, maybe you're listening to Isaiah 11 and saying to yourself, that's nice, that the Spirit of the Lord will make everything perfect in heaven. But how does this help us live in the real world? the real world of predators and wild beasts and snakes. Maybe you were thinking the same thing last week when we read in Isaiah 9 about the end of oppression and war and Christ's everlasting reign of peace. The crucified, risen Jesus may have ascended the throne of heaven and begun to reign, But we're still living in a world where people and corporations and nations still crucify one another in one fashion or another. I have two responses. First is to say that Isaiah 9 and 11 give us a composite picture of a reality that broke into our reality when Jesus Christ came the first time. But it will not be fully realized until Jesus Christ returns the second time, when his kingdom is perfected in the new heavens and the new earth. But that response still begs the question, how does this help us live now? Isn't this just a picture of pie in the sky when you die? So should we just hunker down and wait for the rapture? My second response 
is to say, actually, the pictures of Isaiah 9 and 11 are more real than the real world we struggle with. I say this because our so-called real world that thinks it can go on ignoring or defying God is passing away because it doesn't line up with reality. Although it's hard for us to grasp, the pictures of Isaiah 9 and 11 are actually more real because they line up with the reality that God is at the center, Christ reigns now and forever, and he has poured out the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work, drawing to Christ, convicting of sin, converting to faith, teaching the truth, discipling for life, and empowering for mission and ministry. That God's people would all be saturated by the glorious knowledge and fear of the Lord. And if all that is true, the pictures of Isaiah 9 and 11 are incredibly important to us now. They give us a vision of the glorious reality of the kingdom of God and exhort us to line up with God and join him in what he is doing to reveal and build up his kingdom in the here and now. And that brings us to the final verses of our passage. Verse 10 speaks of the root of Jesse being a signal or a rallying point for the nations. And verse 11 speaks of the Lord extending his hand to gather his people from a list of nations. Um, take a look at verse 11. It contains a list of nations that uh, cover the known world at the time of Isaiah. Verses 10 and 11 had uh, an initial fulfillment when God brought back a remnant of the Israelites to the promised land after the exile. But I want to talk about another fulfillment of verse 10 and 11. For verse 10, it's the cross of Jesus Christ and for verse 11, it's Pentecost. Jesus, speaking of his coming death uh, on the cross, said in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was speaking of his death on the, the cross, but speaking that he would be lifted up as, as a signal, as a rallying point for all people to come to him. And indeed, the cross of Jesus Christ has become a signal and rallying point for all nations because no one comes into the kingdom of God except by repentance and faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. And Pentecost was the first of many times when God gathered people from various nations into his kingdom through the cross of Jesus Christ. On Pentecost, 
God brought people from all nations to Jerusalem. They had come for a feast day, but God used this to bring them together. And then God poured out the Holy Spirit on his own people so that they then went out and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to all these visitors to Jerusalem in their own languages. Um, you can just look at your bulletins at the, on the front page where the reading from Acts 2 is and take a look at the end of that reading. It's, I, I thought it was just the last verse, but it's actually the last three verses, <laughs> 9 to 11, the last three verses, contain, again, a list. And it's a list of um, peoples from nations that represent all the known world of the first century. I want to conclude with two brief prayers for mission from the uh, Anglican Church in North America's order for morning prayer. One centers on the cross and one on the themes of Pentecost. Uh, there's two prayers, so we're going to be saying amen twice. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. O oh God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.